Hi everyone, this is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh here in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I'm talking with Chris Wieners, who's based in Okayama, Japan, not too far from me. He is a marketing specialist for the hospitality and gaming industry, which normally you wouldn't think of having many connections to sustainability. But if you look at how many employees are employed, how much benefit to the local economy these huge、uh, businesses can contribute, of course, they are worth talking about how they can better protect the people, profit, and planet balance. So, this is an interesting discussion from his experience. Inside the industry, doing marketing and consumer communication. I'm talking with Chris Wieners, not too far away. Chris, you're in Okayama, is that right? That's correct, JJ. I am very close, only about 45 minutes away from you on the train, so relatively close today. Yeah, and the home of Momotaro, of course. That is correct. Okayama、yes. is famous for. Yes, yes. Actually, when I tell people I'm from Okayama, Um, you know, in Tokyo or Osaka, that's the very first thing they always seem to mention. So, yeah, Momotaro yeah. is the, the, the famous character here. But actually, I just drove back from Osaka. We had to do some administrative stuff in Osaka,、mm-hmm. and you're a lot closer to Osaka. So, even though you're in the rural area of Japan, it's actually a very good location. Not, it's, it's not far from Kansai, right? Not at all. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a great location. I mean, if we're taking the bullet train, yeah, we're, we're about 45 minutes door to door to Shin Osaka.、Uh, and even driving, you know, which we've, we've had to do a few times here recently, you know, you're talking, it's about a two hour, about a two hour drive to get to, you know, downtown the, the Osaka. So it's,、uh, it's interesting. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it feels very. Rural,、um, very countryside, but the reality is, yeah, it's a really great place to be located. And of course, we're sort of smack dab between Osaka and Hiroshima. So, yeah, Okayama is a really it's an interesting location to be set up, but、uh, yeah, very relatively close to Osaka. Yeah, great. Hi, thanks for joining. I'm JJ Walsh. I'm based in Hiroshima, Japan. I work as a sustainability focused consultant for businesses and the travel industry here. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com. And you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Uh, could you give a little bit of background about yourself? How did you end up in Japan? You were working、Absolutely. in Asia before.、Um, maybe a little bit about your company? Sure. So, a little bit of background on myself.、Uh, I'm originally from the US.、Uh, I grew up in Maryland, but I spent most of my adult life、uh, in Honolulu, where I was working in the hotel industry.、Uh, and I was focused on basically、uh, marketing and advertising for. Uh, the Asia Pacific market, primarily Japan, which is the top feeder market into, Hon- into Hawaii,、uh, and looking after marketing for hotels there. Back in 2008,、uh, excuse me, 2007, I was able to、uh, take an opportunity to relocate from Hawaii and I moved over to Macau with、uh, the company that I was working for.、Uh, and I started to get into basically、uh, casino marketing and advertising in Macau. And I was there. 
from 2007 uh, for 10 years, actually. Uh, I lived in Nacao, uh, basically worked there. And then uh, the personal, there were, there were business and personal reasons to move to Japan. The personal was um, <clears throat> my wife and I, uh, we decided it was time to to make a change, and we we made a move uh, to Okayama, where she's originally from. Uh, and then, from a business perspective, which I'll talk about a little bit today, I saw a lot of unique opportunities here in West Japan, uh, specifically both in market overseas marketing and promotion, um, as well as the developing casino gaming industry here, uh, which is which is forthcoming. So um, yeah, I've been here now since 2017, and I have no plans to ever leave this, uh, the beautiful countryside of, of Okayama. Yeah. Oh, wow. Great. So um, of course, now during coronavirus, things are kind of on a pause. Yes. Um, in terms of uh, casinos and gambling in Japan, there was a lot of movement up until the coronavirus happened. And it seems like now everything's kind of on a pause, but probably after vaccines, maybe from next year, things will start moving forward. Hmm. And from a sustainability perspective, it's interesting you came from Hawaii. I grew up in Hawaii, so it'd be great to oh, connect to No, okay. Now. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse um, me. Well, okay. But in terms of sustainability, it's like cruise ships, casinos, these these things often have just a negative yes. reputation. <clears throat> but they are a huge employer industry. They are something that a lot of governments are keen to start because of the economic input. Um Absolutely. so it's it's definitely something we need to talk about and think about best practice. And you've worked with some great companies over the years. Uh, you were working with Starwood yes. Hotels. Yes, they correct. have a very good reputation for training their staff about looking for wastage, uh, saving energy, doing renewable energy. You also worked with Las Vegas Sands, which That's has correct. a very good reputation for ESGs, which is like a new term, mm. environment, society, government compliance. Mm. Yes. Um, so you've got some really great uh, insights probably into those industries. And uh, I know there's a lot of concern. You also mentioned Singapore, is that right? That's correct, yes. The, um, at the time uh, when I was working with the Las Vegas Sands Group uh, in Macau, we were also in the process of, of pre-opening the Marina Bay Sands property uh, in Singapore. And I know that Singapore <coughs> had a lot of similar concerns to the Japan market. Yes. So they wanted to limit the amount of locals who could access the casino so that there Correct. wouldn't be more gambling problems um, with the local population. And I, I heard that Japan also wanted to limit uh, to 10 times locals could visit a casino in Japan. Is that right? That's right. I mean, one of the first things a new market, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, one of the first things a lot of these new markets look for in Japan is no different is, you know, the impact of, if we talk about gaming in particular, uh, the impact to society, uh, the impact, of course, to the environment, to the local community, uh, and that's you know that's that's really key when we talk about the development of and and ultimately the selection process for casino operators or or what we call integrated resort operators because you know a lot of times when we say casino and a lot of people you know in Japan in particular a lot of people when you say casino they they think of the movie you know Scorsese's movie the you know casino there a lot of people are not necessarily familiar with 
what integrated resorts offer. And I, I mean that not only from a commercial perspective to, to, to clients and to visitors and to tourists, but also to the local community. Um, and then again, much more than just the economic impact is what are the, you know, what are the, what are the impacts to the social fabric of a community that a gaming, a gaming facility enters. So in the case of a place like Singapore, uh, you know, if you talk about the the locals gaming aspect, which is, hey, we we want to ensure that we don't create an additional problem gaming environment or additional opportunities to to enhance this whole problem gaming aspect uh, in Singapore. Uh, they instituted, you know, the maximum amount of times people can enter the casino, as well as a relatively hefty levy, which is approximately a hundred U.S. dollars. So, before a Singaporean can even enter. Uh, in addition to having to provide their ID card to walk into the to the casino floor, there's a levy that must be processed um, every time that person enters the floor. So it keeps out people that could potentially become problem gamers. Um, and then again, there is a, a tracking mechanism in place to make sure that they manage the amount of times that people can enter. In Japan, a lot of the opposition has very much been you know focused on, rightfully so, uh, problem gaming. Uh, and how they're going, how that, you know, could negatively impact the local society. And, you know, there's a lot of examples given here around um, the betting that does exist. Pachinko, obviously, is an industry here and, and some of the negative connotations of that industry, unfortunately. Um, and it's really going to be up to not only the government, uh, but these operators who should be experts in their field, who have implemented best practices in many cases around the world, in different countries, in different cultures, in different markets, it's their responsibility to ensure that they work with the governments locally at the municipality level and at the at the national level to develop initiatives that are going to help. Um, you know, of course, they there's an understanding that they want to you know drive their bottom line and increase their customer base, but they also have to act responsibly, and that is um, something that <clears throat> again I don't necessarily think it gets a lot of exposure when you look at gaming and integrated resorts, but there's a lot of work that these corporations do behind the scenes. Vegas and Singapore are great examples of that uh, in regards to, to how they manage those types of issues. And that's that's on the social aspect. Then, of course, you have the, the environmental impact <clears throat> um, and the sort of local societal impact. So the creation of jobs is, ob is of course, that's key. Um, you know, in places like Singapore and, and in Japan, this has been spoken about getting more women in the workforce. So offering things like on-site childcare services, education stipends, all of these things that casino operators are able to do because of the sheer size, mass, scale, and budget of the properties. Um, again, that is very much behind the scenes, but is really core in terms of their values and what they try and offer to help you know, manage their, uh, sustain the local community. And then of course, there's the environmental aspect, which you, know, you could look at every casino is going to have, or any, this is not just the casino industry, you mentioned cruise ships, the hospitality and tourism industry uh, at large looks at everything from, you know, utilizing green technology, um, food, you know, food recycling and wastage management, uh, waste management, excuse me, um, <clears throat> you know, green energy, all of these things are really core. Um, but integrated resorts, generally speaking, especially the larger players and operators, they're under very intense scrutiny by governments in which they operate, by governments in jurisdictions of which they operate to showcase that they're really serious about managing these sort of sustainable efforts. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really important. And I think that for the operators that are trying to enter the Japan race um, to, to potentially build an integrated resort in the country, 
that is going to be core for them showcasing um, the efforts that they're going to take to be able to manage and develop sustainable a sustainable business within these communities because again in japan we're not only looking at major cities you know we're not only looking at places like osaka and tech te- uh potentially yokohama but we're looking at rural communities wakayama um sasebo out in nagasaki which is i, I still consider relatively rural um, you know, these are not <clears throat> the big cities uh, and they also need, you know, they are going to need to import best practices to ensure that these these developments are sustainable and that ultimately they benefit the the community that they're that they're supposed to be serving. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about some of the best practices. I mean, on the one hand, uh, like you mentioned before, to kind of limit the amount um, that locals use the casino and get um, social impact, such as gambling problems. I mean, we already have that with pachinko, horse racing, a bunch of different kinds of gambling in Mm. Japan, but the integrated resorts casino is kind of a new topic, right? Yes. Yes. They said they were gonna limit the area to 3% of the actual space. So maybe most of it would be a hotel resort and then just a small area, which is limited, Anybody under 18 can't enter. It's limited to locals in terms of having to pay a fee and the amount of times that they can use. So it seems like they are considering um, these social impact things quite seriously. There's a lot of regulation. And then, of course, 30% of the gaming tax goes to the local and national government. So that's, that's the big incentive why Japan wants to open up to casinos, right? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that the approach that these casinos will, the model that these casinos will take will be very much a Singapore model back to the, the levy aspect. So it's unlike Las Vegas or um, even Macau to an extent. Macau, they do check your ID when you try and walk through the floor. So if you're with kids or a family, you're unable um, you know, to walk through the casino floor uh, unless you, you, there's always roundabout ways, <clears throat> which funny enough, you know, can be annoying to some people because the way these hotels are designed is that they make you walk through the casino floor to go to your hotel room. So if you have a family, you have to go, you know, in an elevator up to the second floor, cross and come down. But anyway, I think for Japan, <clears throat> you know, it's going to be like entering an amusement park in the sense that you're going to have to showcase your passport <clears throat> um, or you're going to have to showcase your ID uh, and you're not going to be able to fle- freely walk onto the casino floor. Uh, you're going to have to. Um, there's going to be heavy limitations as to who can actually uh, as to who can actually get onto that floor to play. Uh, and then, um, as I said, there'll be a levy for Japanese nationals uh, who, you know, in terms of I mean, a limit on how many times they'll be able to actually um, to actually gamble on the floor. So I think that there is. Um, it'll be taken quite seriously here. There's other sort of aspects which are still being drafted, um, you know, and again, this is where, you know, operators versus, you know, social sustainability have to some find some common ground. So for example, there's been discussions of not having ATMs um, on the casino floor. So basically it's, it's not really possible for you to, uh, you know, easily collect cash out, which again, from a sustainability perspective, it makes sense, you know, in terms of keeping people from being able to to constantly run back and grab more money. Uh, of course, there's always ways around that, and that can create other problems, which we don't go into today, but um, there, there has to be a balance. And I think that is where you know, the Japanese government, both at the municipality and at the national level, need to make clear what their expectations are. Because what, what absolutely needs to be managed is 
the aspect of, of problem gaming. Um, you know, I'm watching the comments here, you know, and Hannah, absolutely. I mean, you're mentioning that, you know, gambling can destroy lives and families. Absolutely. There's no question. Um, you know, this is a, a vice industry in that regards, in the gambling regards that needs to be managed. Um, and if the government is clear on its intentions and what it expects from operators from the beginning, uh, operators, I think, will meet those goals and help manage it. Then there's the aspect of the 3% rule. So 3% of this massive space will be the casino floor. Now, what ultimately what will happen is you have, again, similar to, to Singapore, you'll have a massive resort with entertainment, food and beverage, hotels, uh, shows. Um, again, if you in this case, if you think of, of, of retail space, if you think of Las Vegas um, or you think of Singapore where you have, you know, the majority, the overwhelming majority of the property <clears throat> is actually um, leisure, leisure focused or mice uh, meetings and, and, and incentives and conventions focused. Um, and the conventions business is massive. And I think that's an area, again, you could sort of branch off and talk about Japan. And, and, and unfortunately, um, you know, from a convention perspective, Japan is quite limited um, with its ability to manage conventions, both from a hotel capacity perspective, um, as well as just from a floor perspective. You know, in Tokyo, we have, I think, one or one or two pillarless ballrooms um, available. And, and, and the largest one is still, you know, pales in comparison to what you see in other major cities around the world. So if you want to get these big international you know, these big international shows and, and incentives and events, um, you know, it requires the development of these types of things. Now, there has been discussion outside of IR in, in places like Yokohama uh, by, for example, the Port Authority in the development of integrated resorts without the casino element. So build everything, just don't take the casino. Of course, the argument <clears throat> from government, you know, Joy, uh, JJ, as you mentioned, is then, well, what about that, you know, what about that tax rate? Because obviously the the benefit, you know, the, at the end of the day, the gaming tax is where a lot of the, the revenue comes from. And the income will be significantly down. They found in the Singapore Marina Bay Sands, 70% of all the revenue from that facility is from gaming. So Absolutely. when you have an inbound tourism model, which is bringing in people who want to go to the casinos and gamble, um, that they expect, especially like for the Osaka area or Yokohama area, they're expecting 70% of the inbound visitors to that area to come for the casino. Yes. So, I mean, this was before coronavirus. Of, of course, right. This is, you know, in terms of increasing the amount of tourism, this is something very attractive to the government. And so it's very likely to happen. So let's talk about how we can do it in a better way for the local communities, in a better way for the environment. Let's not just ignore that this is bad and not talk right. about it, right? Let's exactly. talk about it and think about how we can go forward the, to support people and planet and income at the same time. Totally agree. Totally agree. And I think that that's where it's, it's very important that in these cities where, or these prefectures even, where this is potentially going to proceed, the local governments, obviously, because of coronavirus, the last year has been quite slow in this regard, because this is, of course, not the focus right now is on, on COVID-19. However, prior to COVID, and I think that as hopefully, eventually, when things become you know, more sustainable with regards to COVID here in Japan, the governments uh, and municipalities have, have put on a lot of public hearings and events to sort of 
showcase and and hear back from the general public as to their thoughts, what their feedbacks are, and to sort of get uh, you know ideas and and concerns from citizens, which are then passed on to operators that are interested in Japan. And it's really important that the general public supports that. And what I mean by support is attends um, and that they get involved uh, because ultimately. You know, one thing I will say is that I, I, you know, having having worked in the space and having worked with different prefectural governments on this, they are listening uh, and they are taking very seriously what the general public's opinion is. And, you know, if, if as you said, if the if the opinion is just, well, well, it's bad, so let's ignore it. If ultimately, if the government is going, which they are, they will proceed with these developments. It's it's important that the public is involved and that they are involved in sort of raising the concerns that exist within their local communities, which are going to differ by, by, by location. Yeah. Uh, so that it's, so that it's, that it's clear to operators, again, what's expected of them. If the public doesn't get involved, um, it becomes very difficult. And really it's sort of just government making assumptions on, you know, what, what the community expects. And I think that that, and, and that community varies. Uh, there have been events, for example, in Osaka events for, uh, that looked that talked about, um, and I apologize, I don't necessarily know the name of all the groups, but for example, the w Women's and Children's Association, they held an event around IR. What is their expectation? And this goes back into how can operators and gaming, you know, gaming developers, uh, you know, create sustainable jobs for, for, for women to enter the workforce should they want? How can they provide, again, I mentioned things like childcare and, and education stipends and, and a, a variety of things, but this was brought up. Then you have sort of the the, the chambers of commerce or the local uh, Shokokaiga show, which their focus is on, you know, how are we going to ensure that local businesses benefit from this? So you don't have a giant, you know, integrated resort company from Macau or Las Vegas enter the scene and then outsource all of their, you know, uh, you know, all of their, um, you know, importing of whatever materials from overseas, right? How do we ensure that those contracts are given first to local companies to grow the local economy and to support local businesses and local jobs. These are individual interest groups that will all have a play in, or excuse me, all have a say uh, in terms of, of how this proceeds, but people need to get involved, uh, whether it's private sector, whether it's public sector, it's very important that they help drive this train um, as it proceeds, because there is time. Um, you know, right now it's still very, no matter what anyone says, it's still a very early stage right now. And obviously, you know, COVID has has had a, a, a detrimental impact to the timeline. So I think there's going to be a lot more major news regarding the timelines coming in the next couple of weeks or, or, or one to two months here. Um, so that'll be interesting. But regardless, there's still a lot of time for people to get involved in this development. And I think it's important that they do. Yeah, for sure. Um, I've done some research over the years with hotels in Japan, mm -hmm. and quite often you see more of these best practice ideas in terms of sustainability from the international hotels. Yes. And so if you have these companies like Starwood or <coughs> Vegas Sands coming in, they already are well established in terms of training their staff, um, understanding all the different impacts of every part of the building, of the staff structure, of the input output, of the sourcing. So if you have these kinds of models in place, I think it would actually elevate the business as usual standard in Japan in many ways. Um, also more equality in terms of uh, gender equal business hiring having uh, child care facilities on site, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, let's just go through for Starwood, just to mention it. 
um, some of the things that they consider is about sourcing, like you said. Oh, so, um, you know, where where do the, the local products come from? Do they come from local businesses? Can we elevate the standards of the local business to have a higher quality for our customers? So that in terms of supply chain is also elevating the products for the local area and helping the economy by supporting local businesses. Talking about construction, using renewable energy, LED lights, um, thinking about water catchment and waste management, uh, you know, partnering with third parties like UNICEF. We know that for yes. casinos and a lot of gambling and human trafficking and child exploitation, it's unfortunately connected. Yes. So having a third party, which is well-respected, to think about only that part and be a watchdog is also really important. So there's there's so many of these these great standards that are kind of already in place for the Correct. hotel and resort <clears throat> industry. Correct. So I think if that kind of collaboration or that kind of standard came with whatever big project came to Japan, that would be a big asset. Absolutely. Um, you, you've hit it on the head. I mean, you've got these large international organizations that are um, well-respected in the areas they operate. They have best practices that are proven and not just proven in say America, where we're just going to take an American concept and drop it here, or we're going to take a Singaporean concept and drop it here. These are companies, um, you know, in particular, the two that you've just mentioned, Starwood Hotels, which is now Marriott. And then you've got um, the Las Vegas Sands Group. You know, these are companies that have worked again across, I mean, Starwood, uh, you know, every, every almost, you know, and nearly every country in the world, they have some, you know, some, some or Marriott, they have some integration in. You know, Las Vegas Sands, having worked, you know, in America, in Macau, in Singapore, um, looking at many, many new markets, not only, you know, Japan. Um, and, and, you know, they're just two examples. You could talk about so many different examples of, of or international organizations that look at resorts or the hospitality industry at large. And um, exactly, they have well-oiled sustainability uh, and CSR uh, machines that, again, sort of are replicated, localized, uh, replicated and localized in the markets they operate. And I think, you know, you give that example of, you know, sourcing local products. It's absolutely true. I mean, there's, you know, these properties, when they when they source in the supply chain, there is, of course, a standard of which they, they must operate and a standard which they're willing to accept. And working with local businesses to ensure that there's two key things. One, to ensure the standard is where they need it to be so they can procure from the local business. The second is, of course, volume. You know, one of the things I think in the beginning that businesses in Japan are concerned about <clears throat> when they start to learn the scale of these operations is how are we going to provide the volume? Um, because we've never, you know, especially in rural communities, I go back to places like Wakayama and, and, and Sasebo and Nagasaki, you know, there's there's nothing in comparison to what could potentially be developed. Um, this is on a, a scale uh, unlike almost anything that Japan currently offers in terms of tourism. So understanding and ensuring that local businesses can scale, um, helping them scale as need be, <clears throat> and helping ensure that when they scale, the quality of the product um, or products is where it needs to be to procure the product. That is really important. So absolutely, it's as you said, it's it's a chain reaction. It's sort of, we're going to need this widget. 
Um, so that widget is going to become elevated, not only in terms of the, the quality, and the, but also the quantity, and, and it's going to increase, again, everything. That business now becomes successful because overnight, we've gone from producing you know, 100 widgets a day to you know, 1,000 widgets a day. Um, you know, now that's, that's what's required. And that's, that's across everything. That's across so many sectors. It's across agriculture. It's, acro it's across everything. Um, so it has the opportunity to really elevate the local communities in terms of, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the local business scene. Um, but again, that has to be planned in advance. You can't sort of build it and then hope for the best. This all has to be done in parallel to the operational side, which is okay. We're going to, you know, contract out and build this massive resort. There's many things that have to be done in tandem. Um, and these large global organizations, they know that and they're used to it and they've done it many times. So bringing those best practices to Japan are only going to help um, to help the local economy overall at large. Yeah. And uh, continuing <clears throat> assessment, accountability, having yes. third parties overseeing things, you know, not leaving it completely up to one company. Correct. Um, having lots of collaboration. Unfortunately, um, it has been in the news recently because of scandals. Yes. So there have been <clears throat> some you know, bribes, changing hands, which yeah. have been in the news. Um, let's have a look at this article from Japan Times. So we've had a lawmaker who uh, pleads not guilty over the graft scandal for yes. casinos. But, you know, there's been a lot of negative publicity. Osaka yes. drops its plans to open a casino resort by 2027. Um, localities in Japan are... Yes concerned about casinos the ldp plans to have tax-free casino winnings for non-resident gamblers so you've kind of got pulls on both sides right yes and absolutely they're, they're trying to make it as attractive as possible for international visitors but they also are being pulled by local governments and and local communities who are very concerned rightly so about what's going to happen once they open so i know you you don't represent any of these companies but as a marketer it's so important as well to be transparent and to understand all sides so absolutely that marketing language is honest and uh reveals what is the true situation right? of course uh, and and i think that you know like the the akimoto bribery scandal which was on the top of that that list you know this was a this was a big deal for japan it's sort of it's one of the things that that was there were i think the government had thought there were so many so many people that looking at this that oh this couldn't happen um and it did and i think that yeah absolutely i agree that you can't you don't want to sweep things under the rug either that have happened or <clears throat> that have the potential to happen because again there's best practice probably isn't the right word but there are there are definitely practices that you could look at around the world in any jurisdiction um with regards to the negative aspects of gaming not only problem gaming all the other th obviously you mentioned corruption um you know all the other pieces that potentially fall into play and i think that it's important that you know when we've worked with operators for example um looking at japan we were we were you know we were very clear from a marketing perspective we've said the same thing is that you need to be transparent with regards to here are the here are the negatives right and here's how we combat the negatives because for every negative there is there is a way to combat it or to try and manage that um and i think that it's important to be transparent you don't want to pretend that the gaming and you know it's, it's obvious right everyone knows you know you don't want to pretend the gaming industry is uh is without any issues. Um, you know, there are there are there are many. And I think that it's important that you take those head on. I think that for international operators, it's easier because they've done this before. Um, they're used to it. 
they know the issues <clears throat> and they know how to deal with them. I think, you know, with all due respect, I think for the Japanese government, it's much more difficult, uh, not only from a cultural perspective, but also because this is the first time they've done this. Uh, this is the, I mean, okay, you could compare pachinko and, and, and existing, you know, betting industries that exist, but uh, it's not, it's not really the same. Um, there are, there are crossovers for sure. Very, very different. But it's about totally different. Absolutely. Plus gambling. It's so many components that, that fill into it. Correct. And, and I think that the, the Japanese government should also be transparent with, you know, I go back to the, the, the bribe scandal with the 500.com guys. Um, you know, they, this happened. It's, it's going to be very loud in the news. It's massive in our industry news. We're seeing constant updates, barrages in, in all markets regarding what's happening with this trial. And it's important that the government is not only transparent about it, but sort of says, okay, we, re you know, we recognize this is a problem. Here's how we're going to amend and fix this so it, it doesn't happen again. And I think that that is an area that's, you know, again, for, for, with all due respect, is really lacked from the government side is the transparency to the, to the, to the negatives. And um, again, sort of a plan, uh, you know, a plan in terms of what are we going to do? How are we going to manage this? Um, almost like a crisis management plan to say, okay, this has happened. Um, what's our communication strategy? How do we, how do we, how do we market this? Um, market is not the right word, but what is our communication strategy? And that's been lacking. Um, and that's a problem because what it looks like to your average citizen is that it's sort of being brushed under the rug or that we're trying to hide something. Um, and that's not good. And that only further adds fuel to the fire with regards to those who are, you know, against uh, and strongly against gaming. This is just this is great fodder for those people. And as as and, and it makes sense, because, again, well, why, you know, why can, how sh how can we trust an industry where we've had all these issues already? We don't even have a shovel in the ground to start building a property. And already we're having all of these problems. This is not good. And they're right. So it's it's going to be really important for <clears throat> the government to change the outlook in terms of how they deal with these times of these types of negative publicity. And it's important that operators are also very forthcoming with regards to here are the potential imp negative impacts. Um, and we see them all over the world. We see them in every market. Uh, it's not unique to Japan. It, there may be components in terms of, of culture that are unique here, but in terms of the bottom, the bottom line, it's going to we're going to have the same problems that we have in every integrated resort around the world. We must put mechanisms in place to manage those, whether it's you know uh, corruption at any level, whether it's you know private, public sector, government sector. Um, you know, you mentioned everything from obviously the human trafficking aspect to all of these negatives, which nobody, nobody likes to talk about. Um, believe me, nobody likes to talk about, but they must be because the, the public is talking about them. And if they're not talking about it, they're thinking about it. Yeah. And another big issue, I think, for the operators, if they're coming in from abroad, would be the labor shortage. Like, there's, yes. there's just not that many people <clears throat> who, you know, a casino... How many people? It's it's thousands, tens of thousands. Tens of thousands, yeah, yeah. Um, the Las Vegas Sands employees, uh, they even had an eleven percent decline since two thousand nineteen, but they mm. currently employ almost forty five thousand people. Yes, I mean, it's it's really amazing. Like in terms of if these are decent jobs, this is a big support to the economy. Yes. But can Japan support that right now? We're having such a labor crunch is another concern on the other side, right? 
Correct. And that's, it's been, that's a major point of discussion um, when you listen to operators and government talking, which is, of course, the ability to, so that there, it's, there's multiple folds there. So one is, of course, the, the, at the end of the day, the labor shortage. Um, and then the second is, again, as you said, making sure that these are quality jobs that people aspire to have. Um, and that's not only from a salary perspective, but also <clears throat> from a, excuse me, one second, I'm sorry. That's okay, quality of life. So it's from a quality of life perspective. It's also um, from a uh, from a training and long-term uh, career sustainability perspective. So what are my, what are my career aspirations? You know, I don't just want to, you know, if I don't just want to become a casino dealer, you know, and I have aspirations to move up that corporate ladder, what are what are what are the opportunities for me? And to be fair to operators, that's an area that, from a human resource perspective, they do they're very very good at. Um, now, in the labor market, Macau is, Macau faced a very similar issue. So Macau is incredibly strict on the importation of foreign labor, for example. So um, it's when I was there when I came when I arrived in two thousand and seven, there was a significant amount of foreign labor that had come in, and it was under the guise, rightfully so at the time, of you know. These are the first sort of international gaming operators or gaming operations in the region. Um, we need international assistance to get these things up to par with an international level. And we want to train locals, Macau citizens, on how to operate gaming institutions. And the government said, okay, that's fair. And I think at the time they gave them a 10 or 15 year timeline to say, look, over the next 15 years, you need to ensure that, you know, and there were milestones. In the next five years, we have to cut this many. We call them blue cards. Basically, they were the foreign visas. So we have to cut this many foreign workers. And you know, every so many years, there was another threshold. So you get to the point to the day that really anybody that's not a vice president or above, um, and even those positions, uh, unless you're a Macau local, it's very, very difficult to get foreign import for that labor unless you can prove that there's absolutely no one in the market that can do it. And that's not only through CVs, but also showing I've, I've gone to recruiters, I posted everywhere, I, you know, I've, I've done my work. And this is managed by, uh, you know, the Department of Labor in Macau. So they make sure they check all of this. And they're incredibly, uh, Macau, I give them a lot of credit. They're very good at making sure that local citizens are managed and taken care of by these international operators. Um, Singapore does something somewhat similar, but uh, the labor issue in Singapore is a bit different. So in Japan, where you do have that labor shortage, it's ensuring that these are good paying, high quality jobs that have long-term career sustainability. And when there is realistically no opportunity and no, no opportunity to find anyone local for the role, that is where, again, there's the, the aspect of foreign labor comes into play, but it must be managed. Um, it should not be a sort of, uh, you know, open the floodgates and, and make, it, make it easy to bring as many foreign workers in as you want. I think that, again, if you look at, in this case, the Macau model, of how there was a timeline and sort of milestones in terms of the long-term prospects of how these operations will proceed with regards to human resources. That's something that, you know, the, the Department of Labor here in Japan could also focus on um, to ensure that, again, we're, we're, we're training people correctly and that there are long-term career aspects. So ultimately, 20 years from now, these operations are, you know, operated you know, but primarily by by Japanese citizens. Again, understanding that for something this large, you're going to need a level of imported foreign labor. There's no question about it. Um, but it's how you maintain that. And again, how do you sustain that over the long term? That needs to be well thought out. That's certainly an aspect of international best practice for sustainable businesses. The idea of when you first establish in a new country, bringing your own staff, and slowly over time, 
adding more trained locals more and more, whereas eventually uh, the percentage of local versus non-local staff is a high majority for local staff in that business. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and that's, again, this is goes back to understanding what these integrated resorts bring to the local, to the local, not only economy, but the local society at large. This is the type of thing that needs to be discussed and made very clear that we're going to bring not only jobs, but we're going to bring good jobs. And we're going to bring jobs that have long-term career paths for people that would like to, that like to take that. And that's, and, and, and not only career paths in Japan, international opportunities, people that want to work overseas, uh, people that want to work in other jurisdictions. That's all part of the 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 long-term you know human resource side of things that needs to be that needs to be made very clear actually in my case as well when i was a university student looking for part-time work i was very attracted to international businesses like tgi fridays uh hard rock cafe uh international uh spaghetti factory so all of these businesses, which if you even get a part-time job, you can transfer to other areas of the world. So this kind of mobility of staff around the world at a higher international standard would be very appealing for a labor and people looking for jobs in Japan with maybe higher equality standards for uh, diverse groups who are normally marginalized in I Japan. So I think so too. Um, and again, it's sort of, uh, yeah, anytime you're looking at the tourism or hospitality industry, I mean, this is the reality. You have so much opportunity to, I mean, I, you mentioned, you know, yourself, it's same in Hawaii. When I worked for Starwood, I, one of the key reasons I wanted to work for a hotel chain, I actually started working for Starwood when I lived in Baltimore, when I was right out of high school. And, you know, that the reason I took that job was because I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go to Hawaii and I was like, well, this is one company, you know, in little old Bel Air, Maryland, where I grew up that has some level of connection and, and I found my way and it worked out. So it, it, having those opportunities for the people that are interested in them, uh, absolutely key. So one of the many, many components of, of how these integrated resorts can, can benefit, you know, the local community. But absolutely, as we said, you know, you, you have to take the, the, the bull by the horns, basically, with regards to the negative societal aspects, and they have to be managed, um, and they have to be clearly spoken about up front. It can't be something swept under the rug, because that will just create further distrust of the industry. And like anything we talk about for sustainability, it has to be an ongoing thing. It's not just, okay, now we're sustainable, it's finished, we don't have to talk about it again. It's not just that. It's a constant assessment of consumer feedback, staff insights, local community feedback, government compliance, third party, uh, which are sustainably focused certifications. That's the way it should be for almost any business. Yes, it's a never ending process and it's constantly being optimized. Uh, you know, again, you, you, you sort of go in with your initial, this is what we're going to do. This is our plan. This is our, these are our goals. Those are going to change over time. And again, you can look at any market. Um, I think, as you said, for any business really, but especially in, in integrated resorts, um, you know, I can tell you that what, <clears throat> you know, these different integrated companies were doing 10 years ago is, you know, in terms of sustainability and CSR, a lot of it continues today, but it's optimized. It's optimized as change for the times, change for the market, change for the current situation. Um, and that is something that never ends. Uh, and that's why there are, 
you know, entire departments within these organizations related to CSR, related to sustainability. Um, and they're not, you know, they're not small departments for lack of a better word. There's not one or two guys. There are, you know, they're, they're, and they're not committees. These are, this is their full-time job is just to manage sustainability or just to manage the CSR of, of, of the organization. Uh, well, we know that there's good economic incentive to do this. A uh, 2019 Booking.com survey found that 70% of global travelers are more likely to book eco-friendly or more sustainable hotel or lodging options. Whether they're able to find it or not is a different question. But in 2019, 70% were looking for these more sustainable options. So we know there is a huge demand and especially after coronavirus, when travel resumes, I think we can expect that to be even higher demand for more eco-friendly options and sustainable options. Absolutely. Um, you know, it, it is the the sustainable aspect, you know, whatever the area, whether you're talking about green energy <clears throat> or, or, or waste management, recycling, all of that sustainable hotels um, and sustainable tourism options are are really important to not only of course the local community but to the consumers um you know we talk about hawaii you know hawaii is all about sustainable tourism um and that's you know because the other side of it you get is over tourism right where you just promote 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 and you you know you have a great destination and and then as a result the local infrastructure whatever that infrastructure is is just destroyed whether it's transportation whether it's a place like hawaii with you know natural you know a lot of natural elements um you know, ecosystems, it gets, it gets ruined. So most destinations, and this is true. I mean, I see it in, I've, I've heard it in Macau, you hear it in Singapore, you hear it in Hawaii. We've done some work in Guam. Um, you know, we hear Guam as well. We, um, yeah, the sustainable, uh, yeah, customers are looking for those sustainable options. Um, and if you go to, you know, online travel agents, places like Expedia, places like, uh, you know, tra uh, Travelocity, all the OTAs, they're also really pushing, um, you know, the sustainability aspect of these properties. So yes, it's it's important. And it's, it's a marketing tool as well. As you said, it's not only good, um, you know, from a social perspective, but it's also a good opportunity to promote what you're doing. And people do care. It's great branding and uh, appeal, building brand appeal, not only for the business, but for the destination. Absolutely. Um, Molly, you're saying you can't hear me. Is it better much now? Much better now. I, I was okay. going to say it was hard for me as well a moment ago, but okay. now, now you've, I, for me, it's much better now. Okay, good, good, good. I, I, I saw Molly's comment the, as well, yeah. The program Thanks, volume. Um, let's switch gears <clears throat> a little bit because you're in Okayama and you've been uh, kind of promoting Okayama alcohol tell us about that a little bit yes so we we have a client um which is has now sort of turned into a, a much more long-term opportunity for us uh so you know coming to okayama and just you know living here sort of in the sort of i say rural i mean there's still half a million people in the city but you know if you drive i i tell anyone who's never been here if you drive 15 minutes from where you know the station is the central okayama station in any almost any direction you're going to hit rice fields and, and farms. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a relatively small area. So anyway, we, um, we began speaking with someone here who was very interested in, uh, the, the export of, of, um, various products and their initial focus was on alcohol. Uh, and what basically what we've, what we've done with them is, uh, we've started outreach to 
a variety of local makers uh, or shuzos here in Okayama, many of which uh, are very, very, I mean, I have a couple of photos up here that you've placed, like uh, some of these makers are really rural, um, you know, out in the countryside, you know, an hour outside of the city center. And they've been making whatever it is they're making, whether it's, you know, a sake, um, a, sh a shochu, a beer, different liquor, They've been making, in some cases, for you know over 200, 250 years. These family businesses have been in existence, and now it's run by you know the the grandson or the great grandson or granddaughter of 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 the original maker. And it's it's an it's a it's an operation that is it's it's crazy to walk into these places. These very old buildings, um, the operations are just as they were, other than you know modernized equipment. And there's a handful of people making these small batch brews. Um, again, I, we have everything here. Uh, with regards to different types of alcohol. So what we wanted to do <clears throat> was basically bring, we have this taste of Okayama, but basically bring what Okayama does uh, to some level of mainstream in other markets. And, you know, going back to Macau, which is where I've spent the last 10 years prior to coming to Japan, you know, in, in Macau and in China in general, there's a lot of demand for, for Japanese products. Um, food and beverage is, 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 is on top of that list. So we looked at it as an opportunity to help these makers sort of grow their, their brands and sort of maintain their existing, um, you know, product lines by exporting outside of, outside of Japan. You know, it, and we have several types of makers here in the sense that there are a few. Um, so like one of the, one of the companies we work with, uh, Miyashita Shuzo, they uh, they make Dopo beer, which is, uh, you know, one of Okayama's most famous beers here. You see it everywhere. It's in a lot of the grocery stores and you can buy it, you know, around Japan, you can buy it in Tokyo and they do export overseas. They export to Singapore, to Taiwan, um, to parts of the U S so they're still small, but they are the biggest small batch, you know, craft brewer in, in Okayama. Um, but Outside of them, the other makers that we work with um, are considerably smaller, um, and they're they're very small batch. A lot of them have not really exported. Some of them, um, you know, another beer maker here, the one that I'm holding up this uh, this kiss is from Kibidote Brewery. You know, I think the furthest they export to is like Himeji. So they really are only doing very very local export and very very local sales, and it's very low volume. But they would be, they're interested, you know, and in discussing with them, they'd love to grow their business. They would love to be able to show that they have, you know, purchasers in, in Macau or in Hong Kong or in, in Hawaii, for example. Um, they just don't have uh, the capabilities to, to do the, the sales outreach and the marketing outreach. And that's, that's various. It's, 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 it's language is one component of it, but just the time and the ability. Because again, they're, their focus is just really on getting their batches out to what they need, um, you know, and that's really what they're able to maintain. So we've 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 partnered with um, a, a variety of, of local companies. There are a few outside of Okayama because we had a few contact us. We had one from Kumamoto, uh, one from Tokyo. But we're our, our goal is really you know ninety percent of what we're pushing we're promoting is is from Okayama, um, and our goal is to sort of promote Okayama as a prefecture that um, you know produces really high quality local spirits. Um, and which ultimately draws attention, which ultimately brings tourism in the future. I mean, this was all started, you know, prior or just around the time that COVID-19 was hitting. So we sort of thought, okay, well, let's take the next year to year and a half to sort of build the brand and create the partnerships. And then once, you know, COVID sort of dissipates, Okayama starts to become on the map as this place that has a really great beverage culture. Um, and it does. 
one of the whiskeys actually that we that that's made here locally was a world whiskey award winner um in a in the small batch sort of no age category uh two two years ago uh to, back in 2019 so we have some world-class product here in okayama um it's just not necessarily widely known um as a prefecture or as a as a as a location for for small batch brew so our goal is really to get the names of these makers um out there uh you know get again prior to COVID, they were doing some tours for example some of the tour bus companies were bringing in tourists to kind of view the the the, the facilities that's all stopped of course as a result of COVID. but we we want to support them and we want that to kick off again um in full force once once the foreign visitors start coming back yeah it's funny because when i first came to japan many years ago mm-hmm. um the trend was imported whiskey was kind of yes. a, everybody was like ah imported whiskey is the best and recently <laughs> when i visit um family or friends abroad they always ask me to bring japanese whiskey and they're really like seeking out certain whiskey brands from japan there's been kind of a boom in the last five ten years maybe yeah japanese whiskey has really um has really taken off and i think you know over the past decade as you said there's been a lot of brews from throughout japan that have won really uh you know global awards um back to the world whiskey awards you know in in scotland like you you have all these japanese companies which are starting to to win these these high accolades um both in small batch and in, and in larger batches and as a result that sort of has become a worldwide trend i mean i see it in hawaii i see it in definitely no question in china and macau hong kong um even in the in, even in america when i've gone back to maryland to see you know family and friends um it's really really sought after the japan as japan as a whiskey brand in particular is a really sought after brand right now um so much so in a negative way uh that it's actually caused a lot of brewers who are making um like one of my favorite whiskies is taketsuru 17 um 17 eight years aged it doesn't exist anymore because it was just so popular sort of a mid-price brand whiskey that um it was bought up and they just everything there's just no batches left um whatever's left is spoken for so now it's sort of you know you go online you go to taobao in china you go to you know other other online searches and you know it's just people have kind of hoarded it and are now selling it at these exorbitant prices so they just stopped making it um they just mm-hmm. discontinued so the downside of it is that <clears throat> for some of the more popular whiskies that it's really um it's caused a strain on the whole supply aspect there's just not enough of it to go around which is of course in turn have, have caused some of the prices to skyrocket but that's for some so of the local brewers yeah. what's that sorry that's so interesting. Mm. Uh, when in the series, I talked to Brian Ashcraft, who who wrote a book on mm-hmm. Japanese spirits, mm-hmm. and he was talking about whiskey. And mm-hmm. then uh, we've talked to Stephen Lyman about mm-hmm. shochu, and a lot of the local industry for alcohol, sake, mm-hmm. shochu, whiskey, and other spirits. They all support like uh, an outside collective of like barrel makers and mm. different kinds of traditional craftspeople who create things that this, the alcohol industry has to use to, yes. to brew or distill different spirits. And so it's it's not just like one company that's yes. making yeah. all the money. Like you, it made me realize <clears throat> how community connected and community supported a lot of the alcohol industry is in japan uh you also mentioned craft beer yes you you find that of course with craft beer as well right 
Yes. I mean, uh, to that point, I mean, we see like a lot of uh, liqueurs, especially in Okayama, liqueurs are really famous here. So we've got, you know, as every prefecture sort of has the things that they're proud of and famous for Okayama, it's peaches, um, a little bit of yuzu. um, uh, What else do we have? Ume, Uh, ume ume plums, uh, of course, ume shu. So all of these, all of these, um, you know, infusions that go into these, these, these drinks, uh, or this this alcohol as it's made, of course that that then that then rolls down to the farmers and the and the local agriculture, right? Who are now seeing an influx of requests from the alcohol makers. Hey, you know what we were doing, you know, ten years ago, we're now doing you know five to six times that in terms of the requests, as you said, from be it a barrel maker, be it agricultural institutions, um, and all of that is supported by this increase in demand on the beverage side. And you could you could look at any aspect of increased demand, food, of course, as well. But it, in our area of alcohol. It impacts so many different components um, uh, and different industries or different, uh, yeah, different industries basically to support the making of, of the alcohol. Craft beer is another, I mean, the craft beer culture, you know, globally, of course, is, has really exploded over the past, you know, 10 to 20 years. It's, it's, it's a major thing. And it's, um, you know, it comes down to there are so many different types of craft beer that it really comes down to. To marketing, and I joke like there are there are craft beers which um, like uh, Hitachino, which is um, in northern Japan. They they do uh, what I call the owl beer. There's like an owl on the front. They've Wait, done a massive I marketing love, campaign. I love that one. I love it, but yeah. I always joke: Is it even craft beer anymore? Because they're producing so. I mean, they've oh, got a yeah. they've got a bar at Tokyo Station now. They've I mean, they're everywhere, and they started as this small craft brewery that just really nailed marketing, and now yeah. they're this conglomerate this giant organization and and that's what they wanted their goal was to grow their business and they did an amazing job at it and they produce a good quality product so you know for the others where and look we've seen both sides there are to be you know to be honest there are a lot of 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 local makers um that we've spoken to that aren't interested right they're they're very happy with what they've got they don't want they're not interested in 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 in, it's not about growing their business but they say what we have is sustainable and we don't want to get to a point where we cannot sustain the demand or that we have to sacrifice the quality we're worried that could sink our business and that completely respect um and understand but again there are those that are interested in internationalizing and growing their product but they don't necessarily have either the the budget you know to do it in-house or the knowledge or the ability themselves for variety of reasons to do it so working with um, you know Skyhopper, which is this company that was created in Okayama to 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 allow for the promotion of these these small batch brews, um, working with somebody like that, you know, to basically be the bridge between the product um, and the buyers at the other end is 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 really going to be beneficial to them, um, you know, and just helps them with with everything. I mean, the company is helping not only with sales but logistics. You know, it, I, to be honest, before I started helping them with this. I knew nothing about import export. I really, I was not, I mean, I, I'm a marketing guy. I didn't, I wasn't a logistics person. Um, I have learned over the past, you know, six months to a year more about logistics, um, specifically out of Japan than I ever thought I would know. And it's fascinating. It's, I'm really, it's really interesting. And I understand why for, um, you know, for some of these smaller companies that are family run and operated, it, it can be incredibly complicated. Um, what's required to do international logistics with forwarders and, and licensing requirements and the tax aspects and managing bonded warehouses and all these things that are just, they're not overly complicated, 
but there are just so many things that need to be done if you want to export this. And that's on this side. Then you've got to manage the other side, which is depending on the country you're importing to, of course, can have, right. you know, can be incredibly complicated. You know, countries like America, where it's, it's, it's quite difficult to do. Yeah. Macau, luckily, is a relatively easy company, uh, country to import into. But anyway, for a lot of these family businesses, it's, it's more work than it's worth, um, you know, to do it themselves. So working with them to help grow and expand their brands and their business which ultimately helps grow and expands uh, the Okayama destination brand is is of what course. we're what we're trying to achieve. And Japan in general. And well. of course, Japan in general, across yeah. the board, across the board. I'm I'm always impressed by how well sake is known and accepted and branded abroad, and it seems leaps and bounds ahead of the other alcohols. Yes. Maybe Japanese whiskey is kind of getting there as well. Mm. But shochu, uh, when I was talking to Stephen Lyman. Like most shochu is made and sold and drank in, only in Japan, kind yes. of exclusively. Yes. Um, and then Japan craft beers, relatively unknown abroad. Yes. So there seems to be a lot of potential for this market. Is that what you're seeing? I absolutely, I absolutely agree. We, you mentioned shochu. It's funny. We literally had a tasting in Macau uh, a week ago, and we had sent over, you know, different different bottles of, of whiskey and you know, vodka, gin, all made here locally, uh, and shochu. And, you know, they sort of, they had shown me a photo uh, just the other day where they sort of lined the bottles up by the quality and what they liked versus what they didn't. And shochu, all the shochu was at the very end. And they're like, look, the, their issue was they don't, and uh, for greater China, they're like, we just don't know shochu. Like, it's just not in our culture. We don't know if it's good, if it's not good, is it quality? If it's not, they don't, the taste is an acquired taste, I think, because it's not something that's regularly drank in in that market so right. um and that's you know that's china which is a you know a pretty um you know relatively you know culturally comparison it's much easier to sell something to china maybe than it is to say america so yeah i agree the shochu culture unfortunately um has not really picked up outside of of japan i think it's an opportunity again it's a matter of t of of, of t uh training is not the right word educating or showcasing to people what shochu is how it can be used because remember shochu shochu by itself is one thing but then we have you know liqueur which is shochu plus shochu plus yuzu shochu plus ume shochu plus whatever which completely changes the taste um so you know we had a lot of people interested in okayama ume shu right plum wine which is really sweet um you know it has a quite a strong taste and we're explaining well that's actually shochu it's just shochu mixed with this 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 particular um fruit so it's it's the education, it's the showcasing of, of what shochu is all about. Look, craft beer, you're absolutely right. Craft beer, um, there's a massive opportunity there. It's just a matter of, of, of branding and getting that word out. It's not been something, I think, because it's such a competitive market, because every country from America to Australia to you know Hong Kong, they have their own local craft brews that they work very hard to promote. Craft brew can be much harder to get into the market just because of the competition and the budgets that are required, um, you know, to really to budget and, and the sales and marketing that's required to get it in there um, as, as sort of a, 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 a mainstream brand. Uh, and for again, for a lot of small batch breweries, it's just not it's just not reasonable. Um, Hitachino was just one that really, I think, did everything right. They had the right sales channels. Um, they had the right marketing. Uh, they did a lot of events and, and, and things in Hong Kong and Macau I can speak to because I saw them. So I think that, uh, you know, they've been very fortunate, but it's doable. But definitely shochu and craft beer, there's there's so much opportunity. Um, 
in, in the West, uh, in, or in, I should say in any other market to promote it. Um, and again, going back to shochu in particular, like the umeshu aspect, it's a sweet drink. It's, you know, all of these shochu mixed, you know, fruit drink, liqueurs are very, very sweet. And in some markets like America, um, where sweet is, you know, people really can appreciate the taste of sweeter drinks. Um, I think that they would be, it would be massive if it became mainstream, but it's an, it's an education process that's got to take place. Um, and I think that that is a massive opportunity for Japan's alcohol industry at large uh, in the long term. Yeah, great. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Uh, we talked about two big topics uh, in a short time. <laughs> thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your passion for helping these local businesses and also marketing for possibly huge new inbound business to Japan. <laughs> yes. So it's, it's nice to know that there's people like you helping with the communication side, because that's so important in terms of sustainability and keeping things transparent and accountable. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. No, I, I, I agree. And no, I, I thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure to be able to talk. And I, and I hope that those that are that are watching learned to, you know, we're able to have a few takeaways from it Two very, very totally different topics, but two that I'm incredibly passionate about. So JJ, I appreciate you uh, giving me some time this morning to, to talk and share my share my thoughts. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And uh, keep you. up the good work. Thank you so much, JJ. And thank you to everyone who, who joined and watched. And I appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for, for watching and your comments and questions today. And uh, that's it for this week. Next week, we're starting again from Monday. So I'll put the schedule up sometime soon. Take care, everyone. Have a great weekend. Thank Bye. you, everyone. Take care. Have a good weekend. Thank, thank you. Bye-bye. Right. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, Buy Me a Coffee, Coffee, or Haps. Have a great day.